Good morning, friends. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, where we're going to continue our study of this important chapter by looking at verses 16 to 21. And Lord willing, my voice is going to hold out for the whole sermon. John 3, verses 16 to 21. I hope you've turned there. And if you would, follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know that apart from your Spirit's help, we, we cannot understand, we cannot believe, we cannot apply, we cannot obey the truth of your word. And so we pray, Father, very simply now for the work of the Holy Spirit among us. We ask for illumination, God, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ revealed here in your word. Father, I pray that you would please help me by your spirit to preach things that are true. Please keep me, Father, from error. Please grant your church discernment that we would all hold fast to what is true and so be built up in the name of Christ. Father, help us now to bring honor to you during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John Bunyan is perhaps best known as the author of the Christian classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. But for all of his renown as an author, Bunyan was first and foremost a pastor. Bunyan's life, was, his life's work was to preach the gospel. And, and in his preaching, Bunyan repeatedly emphasized the love of God for his people. If you had lived in the 1600s and had the privilege of hearing Mr. Bunyan preach, you undoubtedly would have heard this as the theme of his sermon, the gracious love of God the Father revealed in his Son, Jesus Christ. But perhaps surprisingly, not everyone appreciated Bunyan's preaching. One critic in particular one day came to Mr. Bunyan and said, if you keep assuring people of God's love then they will keep living however they want to. You can't keep doing this. You can't keep assuring God's, God's people of God's love because if you do, they will live however they want to live. That's a serious charge, isn't it? Do you know how Mr. Bunyan responded? He said, no, if you assure God's people of God's love, then they will do whatever God wants. 
You see, Mr. Bunyan deeply understood the gospel. He had no formal education, and he deeply understood the gospel. When we know the love of God in Christ, then we find that Mr. Bunyan was right. We are compelled not to live for ourselves, but for the God who loves his people in Jesus. Friends, our passage today in John 3 is focused on this same reality, the love of God. As we read these well-known verses... We can see the biblical confirmation that God's love is more marvelous than anything we could possibly imagine. In these verses, we find the scriptural proof, so to speak, that there is one message we ought to build our lives upon. The message that God displayed his love in the giving of his son. John Bunyan preached one message because he knew his Bible. The love of God revealed in Christ is without a doubt the most unfathomably wonderful truth that sinners like us can hear. And this is why John 3.16 is arguably the most famous verse in the Bible. For many of us, it was probably the first verse that we learned by heart. It's the most famous verse in the Bible. It is simple enough for a child to understand, and it is profound enough to occupy our minds for a lifetime. To think that God, the holy, omnipotent, unseen, invisible, sovereign God, would stoop to such a point that he would send his only son to save his people from sin. And what's more, to think that the holy God would display this love not to a well-behaved, morally upright world, but to a world that loved darkness rather than light. Why would God do such a thing? Because God is love. How can a holy God also be loving in this way? Because God gave His Son for sinners. How can sinners like us receive the love of this holy God? By simply and humbly trusting that in Christ, God is for us and for our salvation. Is there anything as wonderful as this? I I know of nothing to know the love of God. God loved the world, not in sentiment, but in this tangible, particular way. He gave His only Son. So we're going to try to do the inconceivable this morning. We're going to try to reflect on the greatness of God's love revealed in Jesus Christ. That's what I hope this sermon is. One extended meditation on the love of God from John chapter 3. We'll do this from five different perspectives so that by the end of the sermon... We may be able to say, Lord willing, that we've gone even just a fraction deeper in understanding what we will spend all of eternity marveling at, the love of God for his people in his son. So five meditations on the love of God from John chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 16 with the need for the father's love, the need for the father's love. 
Most of us can probably recite John 3.16 from memory, which is a good thing. If there were one truth that ought to be etched upon your minds, it ought to be the love of God in Christ. But at the same time, our familiarity with verse 16 may work against us at points. We may breeze past this verse and fail to see how the Father's love meets humanity in the most dire of situations. Look again at verse 16 and ask, who is the audience of the love of God? Who is the recipient? And the answer, incredibly, is the world. God loved the world. Now, why is that incredible? Because, first of all, in John's gospel, the world refers not simply to the totality of human population, but rather to all kinds of people who make up humanity. Think of the conversation that took place right before this between Jesus and Nicodemus. Remember that Jesus said even Nicodemus, a devout, religious, Jewish man, needed to be born again? It was not just Gentiles that needed to be born again. It was Jews and Gentiles, Jesus told Nicodemus. No matter your heritage, no matter your background, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. All kinds of people need the new birth. Well, that same idea is at work in verse 16. The Jews in Jesus' day would have quickly affirmed that God loved Israel, but they would have been slow to confess that God loved Israel and all the other nations of the world. But that's precisely the point in verse 16. How great is God's love? So great that he demonstrates his love for all kinds of people. The totality of all the people that make up humanity. There's no category of person that exists beyond the reach of God's redeeming love in Christ. Friends, this is why we send missionaries to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Because God loved the world. But there's more to the world in John 3. What is the state of the world, according to John? Is the world full of good people who spend their days honoring God and loving their neighbor? Sadly, no. If you need proof of that, just watch the news. In fact, the nature of the world is just the opposite. Look down at verse 19, where John reminds us of the sad state of the world. Verse 19, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In short, friends, the world is wicked. In both desire and deed, the world is full of darkness. In both attitude and actions, the world is the adversary of God. I know that sounds harsh, but that's the clear biblical testimony. Verse 19, your copy of the Bible, you can see it. The world, by nature, loves darkness. Please don't miss that note of desire there. We often think of sin primarily in terms of actions, and that's true. Sin is most visibly represented in actions that are opposed to God. But friends, where do those sinful actions begin? In sinful hearts that are full of sinful desires. We do wickedness because we love darkness. That's a biblical understanding of sin. We do wickedness because we love darkness. That's the state of the world. 
Now, read that definition of the world back into verse 16. Read, read that definition back into the verse. For God so loved the world, the darkness-preferring, God-despising, sin-pursuing world. It was to that world that God displayed His love in Christ. Listen, friends, if you don't start here, if you don't start with the state of the world, then you will never fully appreciate the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you don't start with the bad news of how dark the world is, then the love of God will never go deeper than sentimentality in your mind. Without a right understanding of sin, verse 16 will always look like a nice thing that God did for basically good people. And if that's your mindset, then you will miss the most glorious reality in all of the universe, that God, the holy, righteous, sovereign God, loved His enemies. That's the first meditation that helps us see the greatness of God's love. The need of the world was so dire and desperate that only the love of God in His Son could meet it. Our second meditation also comes in verse 16, and here we think about the cost of the Father's love. The cost. I will argue that this is the most important point for understanding the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. When we talk about God's love, we are not talking about a feeling that God has. Love for God is not an emotional disposition. That's often how we think of love, as emotion or as sentiment. But in John 3.16, God's love is not revealed in sentiment. His love is revealed in a person, Jesus Christ. To say it a different way, God's love is a flesh and blood reality. He gave His only Son. And that makes God's love infinitely costly. Infinitely costly. Think of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Notice the word only in verse 16 there in your Bibles. Older translations render this as the only begotten Son. The idea is that Jesus is the one-of-a-kind Son of the Father. There is no one like Jesus, for Jesus alone shares the Father's nature. This was the main idea in chapter 1, remember? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is unique. He alone is the Father's Son, and therefore, Jesus alone is the Father's Beloved. In fact, for a passage on God's love for the world, the key for understanding is actually found in the Father's love for the Son. If you want to understand God's love for the world, you have to understand God's love for His Son. God the Father loves no one and nothing more than His Son. When the Father beholds His Son, the Father beholds the perfect image of Himself. He sees in Christ the exact imprint of His own glorious nature. The Son is the glory of God radiating back to the Father in perfect holy communion. And this means that the Father loves His Son 
with a holy love that we cannot comprehend. The Father loves no one and nothing more than His Son. And yet, what has the Father done with His unique, beloved Son? He gave Him to the world. He gave Him. Friends, that verb gave is staggering. The idea is not simply that God gave his son as a gift. That's true, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. The idea is that God gave his son as the sacrifice for sinners. The father gave his son to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And and that means, friends, that John 3.16... John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3.16 shines most brilliantly at the cross. The cross shows us that the Father did not love us in theory or in sentiment, but in flesh and blood. As the Son of God bears the wrath of God for the people of God. The The cross shows us that the Father's love is a thousand percent committed As God did not love us in part, but in full. Even to the point of giving up His own Son for us and for our salvation. Church, if we're going to praise God for His love, then we must praise God in and through the gospel. In and through the cross. For it's only at the cross that we can fully understand and appreciate the love of God the Father. The greatness of the Father's love is revealed in its cost. And that cost was the unique, beloved Son of God. So praise God for the cross. That's meditation number two. Number three, also from verse 16. We will talk about the other verses at some point. Number three, also from verse 16, we need to think about the purpose of the Father's love. The purpose of the Father's love. Clearly, the the Father's love is a profound reality. But why would God display such a costly love? Verse 16 tells us, note the purpose. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Why? That whoever believes in Him, should not perish, but have eternal life. We're going to come back to belief in the Son at the end of the sermon, but for now, we need to think about God's purpose in sending His Son. The alternatives are stark. You can see them there in the verse. So that those who believe would not perish, but have eternal life. Those two realities, perish and life, must be interpreted in light of one another. Perish, in verse 16, is eternally perish. This is the just penalty for sin. We die physically, and then we experience God's judgment eternally. This is what every person deserves, the wrath and judgment of God. In fact, every person comes into this world already under this sentence of judgment. Look at verse 18, where John says that those who do not believe are condemned already. You see that? This is key for understanding the Father's love. The world does not exist in a neutral state before God. 
Humanity does not come into existence in a position of neutrality. The world exists in a guilty state before God. And therefore, apart from God's love in Christ, we are bound to perish. We are condemned by sin to be eternally separated from God. But God, because of His great love, sent His Son so that those who believe would not perish. The Son's mission was to redeem God's people from the just penalty of sin. Friends, this is why Jesus had to suffer to the point of death. Because the penalty for sin is death. The Son had to perish so that believers in Christ would live. That's why these stark realities must be interpreted in light of one another. Because the Father's purpose required the Son to perish in our place in order that we would receive eternal life. The same purpose is repeated in verse 17, but this time from a different perspective. Listen again to the Father's purpose in sending the Son. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. A a point of clarification is needed here. When John says that the world might be saved through Christ, he is not teaching some kind of universalism where every person is saved regardless of his or her response to the gospel. The Bible is clear that many people will face the judgment of God for their sin. Indeed, verses 18 and 19 in this very chapter are teaching this point. Sadly, there are some who will perish. So when verse 17 speaks of the world not being condemned, but being saved, the point is not universalism. Rather, the point has to do with the character of God. It has to do with the character of God. According to the Bible, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Did you know that? The book of Ezekiel, God says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. God is holy and righteous, but He does not rejoice over those who are condemned in sin. Friends, this is a matter of great importance because it involves the character of God. In a way, verses 16 and 17 in John 3 are teaching us that God's love displayed in Christ is more about God than it is about us. That's a big statement, so let me defend it. God's love displayed in Christ is more about God than it is about us. That's not to say that God's love has nothing to do with us. Clearly, God's purpose in sending the Son is so that His people would not perish but have eternal life. But even then, even in sending His Son into the world, what is God ultimately doing in the giving of His love? What is God ultimately doing? He's showing us what He is like. The Son reveals the Father, remember? In coming not to condemn the world, but save the world, the Son shows us that the Father is slow to anger. The coming of Christ shows us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. 
The mission of Christ is to reveal, us, reveal to us that the Father is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy and grace. He doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked. So the love of God in Christ is certainly for us, but it's about God. It's showing us what God is like. And this, in turn, helps us understand eternal life in verse 16. What does it mean to have eternal life? Well, life is one of the Apostle John's favorite words. And all through this gospel, John teaches that life is in the Son, Jesus Christ. John 5.26, for example, As the Father has life in Himself, so also He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. Or perhaps most well-known, John 14.6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Life is in the Son. This is why those who believe do not perish but live, because faith unites them to the living one, Jesus Now, we can make the connection with eternal life in verse 16. What does it mean to have eternal life? If life is in the Son, what does it mean to have eternal life? It means you will spend eternity knowing, worshiping, and treasuring who God is in Jesus Christ. Life is in the Son, so eternal life is the unending bliss of knowing Jesus, where each moment is greater than the moment that preceded it, and that unending succession of glorious, satisfying moments continues for all eternity. That's eternal life. It's so much more than than unending existence in mansions on streets of gold. It's participating in the life of God, revealed in His Son, where each moment, more and more, you're seeing and being satisfied in who God is in Christ. That's why life with God must be eternal. How long does it take to know the glory of God in Christ? It takes forever. And that's why we will live forever with the Father in the Son, indwelt by the Spirit, rejoicing in the triune God. That's eternal life. You can keep the mansions and streets of gold. I'll take the Son. This is why I say the purpose of the Father's love is more about God than it is about us. Yes, God loved the world by sending His Son so that those who believe would not perish but live. That's wonderfully true. Wonderfully true. A thousand times, amen. And yet, it's more wonderful than that. At the end of the day, who is glorified in the gift of eternal life? God is glorified. Our salvation and God's glory, our joy and the glory of God bound together in this one glorious truth that in the Son, God loved the world. It's amazing. That's the purpose of the Father's love, that believers would live eternally seeing the glory of God and therefore praising His name. That brings us to meditation number four. From John 3, the effect of the Father's love. The need, the cost, the purpose, now the effect of the Father's love. 
We've just thought about what it means to have eternal life in Christ Jesus. And while eternal life certainly has a future element, the Father's love also impacts our present lives and in remarkable ways. Eternal life begins now, in other words. There are two effects in particular that stand out in this passage, and both of them flow out of God's love for his people. The first effect is assurance. The Father's love gives assurance to the Christian. Look again at verse 18. Whoever believes in the Son is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The key to verse 18 is that word condemned. Think of a convict standing before the judge at his sentencing. When the gavel comes down and the judge declares guilty, that convict stands condemned. His position in the world is one of condemnation. He's guilty. That's the standing of those who reject the gospel. They stand condemned already because of their sin before a holy God. But that is not the standing of the Christian, verse 18 says. The believer is not condemned before God. Because of God's love in Christ, the Father sees every believer as forgiven and righteous. The believer is forgiven because of the cleansing power of Christ's blood. That's why we sing about being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Why would people sing about being washed in blood? Because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. And we are then counted righteous as we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So consider the application of this to your life as a Christian. If you're a Christian this morning, when God looks at you, He does not see you as a sinner. Let me say that again. If you're a Christian this morning, when God looks at you, He does not see you as a sinner. You are not condemned, verse 18 says. How does God see you? He sees you as He sees His own Son. Pure, righteous, and accepted in His sight. That's your assurance of salvation this morning if you are a believer. But you may respond, I don't feel pure and righteous and accepted by God. Well, of course you don't. But the Christian life is not lived by feeling, is it? We walk by faith and not by sight. So on some sense, embracing the truth of the gospel is faith triumphing over your feelings every day. You believe what God says is true about you. Your assurance is not rooted in your performance as a Christian. Your your assurance is not rooted in your worthiness as a believer. Your assurance is rooted in Christ, who has been given to you by a loving Heavenly Father. So if you don't feel holy and righteous and accepted by God, then receive the assurance by faith and not by feeling. That's how we walk before God. Verse 18 tells us that the effect of the Father's love is assurance. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. The second effect of the Father's love is related to that. The Father's love gives the believer confidence to enter the presence of God. 
assurance, and confidence. Look at verse 20, where the picture actually is not one of confidence, but one of blindness and hiding. Verse 20, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Friends, this is another description of fallen human nature. I know that we keep coming back to this, to the issue of depravity in the human life, but that's because you you can't fully understand the gospel without it. You can't fully understand the Father's love without understanding our fallen condition. And the picture in verse 20 is tragic. The point in verse 20 is that wicked actions reveal wicked hearts. Those who reject the gospel do so because they hate the light. Remember, light in John's gospel represents Christ and the truth of his gospel. So verse 20 is a picture of the fallen human heart. Mired in sin, human nature despises the truth. And from the darkness of that opposition, human nature pursues sin. But there's a new element to the description in verse 20. Look look again at verse 20 and notice the last phrase. There's a new element here to this picture of human nature. Verse 20 says, lest his works should be exposed. Why do sinners prefer the darkness? Because they falsely believe that the darkness can hide them. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, fallen human beings prefer to hide in the darkness because they know in their conscience they cannot stand in the presence of God. Friends, this is why our world spends so much time attempting to justify what is plainly evil. For a world that claims to have no use for God, it is striking that our culture spends so much time defending itself from the God people insist does not exist. Have you ever noticed this? It's clear evidence that the knowledge of God is actually inescapable. You know the statement, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Eventually, you cannot escape the knowledge of God. Fallen human beings will deny God with the first breath, and in the very next breath, they will defend themselves against the God they claim does not exist. What is happening at that moment? The effect of sin is being worked out in the human conscience. We know, we know that we cannot stand in the presence of God. Apart from the Father's love in Christ, human beings have no confidence to stand in God's presence. And despite all of our attempts to justify and to hide and to blame shift, at the end of the day, we know that is true. But amazingly, the situation for a Christian is entirely and wonderfully different. Look again at verse 21. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, right away, we ought to emphasize that the phrase, whoever does what is true, is a synonym for being born again. To do the truth in John's gospel begins with believing the truth. And believing the truth is the work of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. So verse 21 is describing a Christian who has been made alive by the Spirit and whose life gives evidence of the new birth. 
But the point that I want us to focus on in verse 21 is how the believer no longer hides from the presence of God. Did you catch that? When the light of Christ shines, what does the believer do? He doesn't hide. He comes into the light. Friends, that's another way of saying that the Christian has confidence to enter the presence of God. By faith, the Christian does not hide in the shadows like Adam and Eve in the garden. By faith, the Christian draws near to God. That's the effect of the Father's love in Christ. It gives us confidence that God is indeed my Father. And therefore, I do not cower in terror. I draw near by faith. Friends, this is why even confessing your sin is an evidence of God's grace in your life. Why do we put such an emphasis on acknowledging our sin and confessing it and bringing it into the light? Because that is the demonstration of the Spirit's work in our hearts. The confidence to draw near to the Father, knowing that we're not condemned. And what happens when the Christian draws near to God in confidence? Well, just like before, God is glorified. Notice the last phrase, verse 21. Why do they come into the light? So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Church, everything good in us and every good deed done by us is a work of God's grace in us. That's the point of verse 21. Our redeemed lives, evidenced in godly living, reflect the greatness of God's love. God is glorified when his children draw near to him. So imagine that we leave the service here in a minute and you go out in the hallway and you see a child come out of the nursery and he turns the corner and he sees his dad here at the doors and he just takes off at a sprint and he runs and he jumps into his father's arms. You got the scene? My kids are too big. They don't do that anymore. It would hurt me. When that child rounds the corner and he takes off at a sprint and he runs and he jumps into his father's arms, do you stand there and think, man, that is one well-behaved child. He knows that he's so well-behaved that his dad's going to catch him no matter what. Is that what you think? No. You think, that's a child who knows he's loved. That's a father who has demonstrated his love for his son and his son knows that he is confident to enter the Father's presence. And that's why he runs. That's the effect of verse 21. That's what verse 21 is saying. We come into the light, even in moments of confession, we come into the light because we know without a doubt that God is for us in Christ Jesus. Because of the Father's love in Christ, believers have this incredible confidence to enter into the throne room of God. Assurance that we are not condemned and confidence to live in the light. Friends, that's the effect of the Father's love. Meditation number five. This is the last one. We've been talking all around it. Now we're going to end with it. Number five, the response to the Father's love. The response. Part of the power of John 3.16 is the simplicity, right? 
the truth of the verse, uh, the verse is plainly presented. God loved the world in giving his son so that whoever believes in Christ will not perish but have eternal life. It's a simple summary of the gospel. You can say it in one deep breath. And the response to the Father's love is simple as well. John 3.16 does not say that whoever does enough good works receives eternal life. It does not say that whoever earns God's favor receives eternal life. It does not say that those who participate in the ecclesiastical means of grace receive eternal life. That's not what it says. The response is simply and humbly to believe in Christ. To trust Him for salvation. That's the response to the Father's love. To believe in Christ. What does it mean to believe in Christ? Surely there's no more important question than this. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is the portion of the message that I hope you hear loud and clear through the Holy Spirit. I hope that you will hear from the Bible what it means to receive the Father's love. What does it mean to believe in Christ? It means, first of all, that you trust on the authority of the, of the Bible that Christ is who he says he is. You trust that Christ is who he says he is, that he is the Son of God who took on human flesh so that he is both God and man together, that he is the righteous one whose life fulfilled the law in perfect obedience, that he is the Lamb of God who shed his blood on the cross to pay for sins, and that he is the living one who rose again from the dead, thereby proving that his payment was good. To believe in Christ means that you trust Jesus is who he says he is. And then you entrust yourself to him. You entrust yourself to him. You confess that on your own, you are a sinner who has defied God, both in what you have done and what you have not done. And then you entrust yourself, your life, and your eternity to Christ, believing that his life counts for you, his death pays for you, and his resurrection secures your future. You bank your life and your future on what Christ has done. You trust that Christ is who he says he is, and then you entrust yourself to him. That's how you respond to the Father's love. You believe in Christ. And amazingly, amazingly, this call to faith, simple, humble faith, this call to faith is extended to all people. Notice in verse 16 that it says, whoever believes in the Son has life. The point here is not that salvation depends upon us and God is somehow up in heaven twiddling his thumbs hoping that someone, whoever, will respond. That's absolutely not what verse 16 means. The whoever in verse 16 means that no kind of sinner is excluded. No kind of sinner is excluded. Self-righteous sinners who smugly think they are better than everyone, they are called to believe in Christ. Self-loathing sinners who cannot escape the shame of what they have done, they are called to trust in Christ. 
Self-promoting sinners who boast in their own wickedness, they too are called to believe in Christ. Whoever believes in Christ is saved. No sinner is beyond the reach of the Father's love in Jesus Christ. Whoever believes is saved. And therefore, friends, therefore, the response to this passage, the call of this passage, is simply and wonderfully to believe in Jesus Christ. To trust Him and to entrust yourself to Him. In Christ, God has answered our greatest need. He has given us a Savior. In Christ, God has displayed His love at infinite cost. He has given us His unique and beloved Son. In Christ, God has accomplished the purpose of His love that we would not perish but have eternal life. In Christ, God's love has its full effect, giving the Christian assurance and confidence before God. And now, through the gospel, God calls sinners to receive his love through faith in Christ. And so, we pray, we pray that God's Spirit would work now in our hearts, assuring us of the Father's love, and even calling those who have yet to believe to entrust themselves to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we have not nearly done justice to this concept that you would love the world in the giving of your Son. And so we ask now, Father, that by your Holy Spirit you would take our efforts this morning to think your thoughts after you. We pray that you would work by your spirit and multiply the effect of these meditations. We pray that you would work by your spirit to bear fruit in the life of your church to the glory of God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so we pray now, God, for the work of the Holy Spirit to build us up in this truth. We ask this, Father, in the name of Christ, confident that you hear us and that you love us in him. Amen.